there comes a time in every podcast network's existence where the envelope that they push must be pushed farther. The game that they play must be changed. The future of the North-South Connection changes now. In an attempt to shake up the world of wrestling podcasts, the staff of the North-South Connection will share with their loyalist of listeners their most private thoughts and opinions on life, professional wrestling, and beyond. Live from a week's worth of voice memos from a private messenger chat, it's Noso's Group Chat Confidential. Aaron's been watching WCW and talking a bunch about not really being as into the Dangerous Alliance as he expected to be based on all the talk over the years. And is it, I don't know, is it one of those things that legend is better than actually is? I mean, there's a whole podcast on this network right now dedicated toward digging into that era. So, you know, they're talking about it. But is it not as special as it's always been projected as? I was going to talk a little bit about the uh, Dangerous Alliance talking point. I do think it's kind of multifaceted because I I see what you're saying. I mean, I I think watching from a booking standpoint, if you watch it pretty closely, uh, I don't don't know how close you're watching the TV and stuff, but like even with Sean with Seven Months of Danger, he's watching it pretty close. Uh, with the stuff I got from Charles, I'm able to watch even closer, like week to week with Pro Worldwide, Saturday Night, uh, the WCW Pro Chicago Power Hour, etc. And uh, it's it's a couple of things. One, I think the booking's pretty bad in general for the Dangerous Alliance. Uh, a lot of times they look pretty stupid, <laughs> quite frankly, where they they get beat in these fluke pins and then end up attacking after the belt. The other thing with that is uh, because of the way WCW had the TV schedule, there's so much like overlap that a lot of stuff doesn't make sense. So you'll be watching a match on the Power Hour, for example, I uh, just watched one, Dustin Rhodes versus Bobby Eaton, where Dustin gets his neck worked over for two or three minutes very viciously from Bobby Eaton. He uses a chair. He's, you know, choking him on the ropes, etc. And then, you know, later that night, they have an eight-man tag on WCW Saturday night, and it's completely ignored just because they probably taped that power hour match a month before or whatever um so so those are the qualms um i do think there's some great tv matches and i think the positives just because uh, besides hey look these are like awesome dudes teaming up is that the general floor and quality on the tv product uh, was just raised like that power hour match i mentioned i mean it's nothing exceptional but it's a three-star match and when you look at WWF, like WWF, there's really no good TV matches from uh, WCW Saturday Night. 
or WCW, WWF Saturday Night Main Event, the first one on Fox till WrestleMania 8. Uh, whereas with WCW, they were now having, in general, at least one good TV match per week, just, just based on the odds. Like, they were doing some stupid stuff still, throwing in, like, Van Hammer and the Patriots and whatnot, Ian versus the Dangerous Alliance, but... You were generally good to have one good TV match, which was a welcome change because even in 91, uh, the WCW TV match stuff was inconsistent. So I, I think that's where the positives lie for the Dangerous Alliance. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even saying that I don't like it. Um, I, I don't think it's bad or anything. I think it's probably pretty good. I just, I guess I was expecting, because I never watched it, so I was expecting like... <laughs> greatest of all time level stuff i guess maybe and that's on me right one thing i do find interesting about watching wcw is it's such a different product watch than wwf so wwf i feel you could watch the pay-per-views you can watch the Saturday Night's main events and if you just watch that you get an overall gist of everything because they're great at recapping and showing you what happened whereas wcw i feel like i'm not watching the tv anymore because there's too much of it I'm just watching the clashes and the pay-per-views and it's like Every, every other show, there's a new champion, and they never explain what happened, or they'll, they'll explain it with a throwaway. You know, so the, I guess it's more of a TV-dependent product at that time, um, which is fine, but like, I always feel like I'm out of the loop watching it. Oh, it's like, oh, okay. Like, Steve Austin and... Was it Steamboat? No, it was Barry Windham. Traded the TV title back and forth, but like, it's like all I see is... Steve Austin has it on one show, then Barry Windham has it the next show, and then Steve Austin has it kind of thing. So maybe that's part of it, too, that, like, I'm not watching everything. Uh, I definitely think if you're just Clash and pay-per-views, there's going to be a lot of connective tissue that you don't get. That's uh, certainly one of the things that plagued WCW um, almost right up to their demise, but... Yeah, what can what can you do? Uh, I mean, you can just look at something again, like using the WrestleMania Eight example. They give that great video package of Sid demolishing folks with his uh, entrance hammer music pounding in the background. You get a general gist of what's going on in that feud and what the issues are. On the WCW side, there's a lot of stuff you kind of have to watch and stuff. Especially, I think, in the, with the Ninja and Super Brawl 2. I'm up to that right now. And there's a lot of, like, stuff you kind of have to fill in the blanks with with what eventually happens with that. So, that, that's certainly a downfall. I, I mean, as someone that's seen all the stuff, I, I don't necessarily think that the Dangerous Alliance overall is one of the, like, greatest runs of all time either it's 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 tough to conceptualize uh like i mentioned before it's i i, I was kind of in the same boat with you i got a uh, 12 disc compilation from will and i was just really excited to dive in and thought i'd just kind of binge watch it and after a while the stuff felt the same and i kind of just had to keep coming back to it after like a month break so i don't know i mean good Really good, sometimes great. The peaks, I think, are amazing. Like Clash 17, I think, is one of the best clashes. Uh, the War Games, I think, is the best War Games. But definitely some opportunities missed as well. I guess they're, like, rewarding. Like, they're rewarding you for watching everything. But it just becomes difficult 
if you don't. But then again, are you going to wade through all that stuff? They just strike me as like a, a less effective, too cool for school horseman. Not to say there's not great stuff. And I had forgotten about that fucking ninja because he just showed up one time on pay-per-view and there was a thing and then, then he wasn't there. I definitely haven't seen all the TV, uh, so I'm not as knowledgeable as Chad. Um, but I always thought the uh, Dangerous Alliance was one of the most overrated and misremembered runs and stables of all time. Um, and I think like you just look at that collection of talent and it's so uh, romanticized, but everybody's at like different stages in their career. Um, and I think it's an, a rare example of the parts being greater than the sum. Um, like I think they'd almost be better off individually. Um, rather than in a uh, collective group. But they do have like that super strong Clash 17, which is one of my all-time favorite shows. Um, and in that War Games, which is one of the best War Games, if not the best War Games of all time. So like their high-end stuff is on TV and on pay-per-views, which really helps, um, I think, with the uh, remembrance of the group. Um, and plus like it's got Paul Heyman and I feel like Paul Heyman is just like a master pusher of his own uh, hype. So I think that goes a long ways. And that's not to say that the group is bad by any stretch. It's just I don't think it belongs in that top tier of uh, like horsemen. Oof, you know, maybe not even evolution. Um, yeah, but I don't know. Maybe you guys can kick me out of the group for that one. But it's just it's just not up there. I don't think. I mean, but how great can the Dangerous Alliance be when Larry Zabisco is in it? Ugh. I feel too we judge the Dangerous Alliance almost on almost on Austin's um, post-Dangerous Alliance success. So it's like, oh my God, this group had Steve Austin in it. But I find him pretty boring uh, in this run. Like, watching this run, and I'll see as I go forward, because like, I'm only at 1992. But watching this run... I get why they why Bischoff would fire him. It makes total sense to me. The potential for Austin that people saw and that were it was like egregious, I think comes more through the Hollywood Blondes and post that, where it was obvious that he was starting to put it together. Because I mean he comes into ECW, he's almost fully formed. And I think that it was around that time where there was a bit of a swell. I remember as being a fan, like wanting to see him move up after losing to Steamboat and all that, and into 95, then he gets hurt. But that aside, I think the Dangerous Alliance is looked at more, it's almost like an in-theory thing, or by potential. Like, like, you look at it, and, like, it's your dream concept for a heel stable. Like, an awesome manager, a bunch of guys that are great workers, uh, you know, awesome characters with Rick Rude. You got Medusa, you know, kind of the badass chick with them like they're running roughshod you have the huge showdown with the big face team like that's that's like dream fantasy booking that we do all the time with this type of stuff and like there it was so i it's almost like one of those things as more footage has become available it's almost dinged it like i think when it was just lingered in your memory as this awesome concept back in the day it stood up better I think just what's happening is the more we're looking at it, it's like, all right, this was good. But yeah, it wasn't like a game changer, perhaps, that we all thought it was. But I don't know, like to Chad's point, 
you rewatch a TV and you're getting three star matches on every syndicated show or whatever else, like that wasn't the norm at that time in wrestling. So that alone, if you look at it within the construct of, okay, what wrestling was in 1992 on TV, it was pretty game changing. It's just looking back at the lens, maybe it's not as exciting as it seemed at the time. And like, so what could have been done to make it better? Would you have replaced someone in the group? Like Tim T, you know, took a shot at Larry. Do you take him out and swap him? Like who else is around at that time that would have been a better fit for what they were going for? Or is it just the booking? Like what is it that seems off that could have been done differently to make it really connect? I think the easy answer is if you remove Larry Zabisco and you give us that wonderful dream team of beautiful Bobby and Arn Anderson, that immediately makes the enforcers way better. Um, kind of just like the shock and awe of having Larry Zabisco be the guy who crunches or crushes. It's still very weird to me. And then ag- um, I don't even know what word I'm trying to say. It's very early. But having him be the guy who's like an agitator and one of the big glue pieces for the Dangerous Alliance is just off to me. Um, I think that group works really well as a four man. And if you have to do five, then I think you look elsewhere, like perhaps maybe pulling Barry Windham, but... I don't know. I think I'd have to go through the WCW roster and try to find somebody. This is all just top of head, but absolutely anyone, anyone but Larry Sabisco. I think one of the big problems with the Dangerous Alliance is that it's a lack of characters. Like Rick Rude's a great character, but Steve Austin's not a character yet. Arn Anderson is the enforcer kind of a character. And I don't like, I am not a fan of Beautiful Bobby. I don't know what it is. It just doesn't connect for me. But I think if you're going to replace Zabisco, why not replace him with a character guy like, this is going to sound insane, but um, like a Kevin Nash. Like he can be muscle. I I, I agree. If you're going to do that, if you're going to get Zabisco out, like put... um, beautiful Bobby and Arn together as a team, but have Nash as like the wise cracking, like dangerous dude who doesn't wrestle that much, but he's in the background. Or just keep him as Oz. And then you really gimmick it up. I will say too, the part of the day, the problem I have with the dangerous Alliance too is has little to do with them, but everything to do with the product around it. Like I've been, I mean, if you, again, I'm just doing pay-per-views and, and clashes, but like how many fucking tag team tournaments do we have to have? Like this is the second one in in the in the life of the Dangerous Alliance, and it's just okay. We're just running through these tags. I believe you are campaigning for the birth of the uh, an older Dungeon of Doom uh, there, um, and I'm not going to question your sanity. Also, was Vader hurt during this era? Because he really does nothing until Great American Bash. He's barely on the shows at all, um, and that feels. What about him? What about Vader as the main event guy? Rick Root as the upper card, upper mid card top guy. Austin underneath and then a tag team. As soon as I heard the idea of putting a character in the Dangerous Alliance, I uh, got a little couple of shivers because I was thinking you guys were going to pitch PN News. 91 and 93 WCW is extremely tag heavy. Like, 
They love tag teams. They love tag team matches. They love six-man tags, eight-man tags, pay-per-view, Clash TV. Like, it is a tag. It's almost a tag-first promotion. Like, when I think of those years and I think of, like, what pops in my mind, it's always, like, tag team stuff. And, it, it, you know, I guess Sting Vader, but beyond that, a lot of it is just, like, tag team stuff. Yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. I think Vader was in Japan a lot still. I think he was splitting time and then came over full time when they started to run with that feud. But I may be wrong. Chad could probably correct me on that. Yeah, I think Dangerous Alliance are just 8x10 world champs. Like, you just look at that group, you look at that 8x10, and it's like, okay, this is obviously the greatest collection of talent. But I think the booking, they just don't do anything like... Rude should have been world champion, which probably opens a whole other conversation about like Sting and Luger having the world title at like opposite times. Like Sting should be champion during that 91 stretch. Luger should have been champion, uh, you know, in early 90. Um, so like Sting should be fighting, uh, fighting off the dangerous alliance to like keep the world title or like fighting to get the world title back. So the group actually accomplishes something um, and like make some headway towards its goal. As opposed to like, well, Dangerous Alliance is in another tag team tournament. Steve Austin's wrestling like 15 minutes for the TV title. Rick Rude's U.S. champion. Like it just doesn't have doesn't have the same stakes there. So maybe putting Vader in does leave that then. Like maybe maybe he's not in it to start, but they Rude fails to capture the world title. So Heyman goes shopping and brings in Vader. And Rude starts to kind of feel alienated. Vader wins the world title from Sting with Heyman's help and the Dangerous Alliance's help. Rude ends up maybe turning face. And, you know, then they were kind of headed that way anyway. You know, maybe he, maybe he's the guy that beats Vader instead of Simmons or something in the summer. If you want to do something like that. Uh, if you want to mix it up. Rude, Rude breaks out and Vader's with Heyman. A lot to digest here. Uh, one, yeah, Vader was in Japan. Uh, pretty much exclusively from uh, February-ish up to June. So so he's kind of out for the the main meat of the Dangerous Alliance. Uh, second, I, I, I think we're kind of dancing around it, but you got to remember, uh, I agree it's more of a tag team forward promotion, and a lot of that has to do with Watts. Uh, Watts coming in, he's a big tag guy. Uh, but just overall, and I think that's the main thing on why the booking or whatever of the Dangerous Alliance can be seen as scatterbrain, as when it started, Jim Hurd was in power, then Kip Allen Fry comes in, who is much more of a wrestler's, you know, person, and given the bonuses and whatnot, but as far as booking philosophy and a visionary, as far as the ins and outs and what works in wrestling, he was not that guy. Then you have Watts come in, who can be that guy, but on the personal side is way off. Uh, him and Paulie clash tremendously, leads to Paulie leaving, etc. So it was just kind of a mess from that. Uh, I do think there's a lot of Larry Z slander going on. And I think I think Larry Zabisco is an important cog of the Dangerous Alliance and what actually works. I mean, you do need some sort of a loss post uh, for the promotion. You look at like Dragon Gate in Japan; they always have that 
one individual that is the main loss post on the faction that they're on. And I think Larry Zabisco is a good choice. Also, he brings a lot of energy to these matches. Um, you know, like Bobby Eaton mechanically works for me, but personality-wise, he's kind of, you know, what he is. Uh, Austin, at this point, doesn't have a whole lot of personality either. So Larry Z is that constant, like, agitator, annoyance uh, that kind of gets under the skin. One thing I would have liked if the angle would have uh, advanced is I think you could have done, like, Vader after he beats Sting. You could have done all that and kept the Dangerous Alliance strong, etc., and had to have, like, an unholy alliance between Vader and the baby faces going against the Dangerous Alliance because they're such like a threat to take over WCW. And that could open up some cool stuff with like Vader versus Rude instead of what you get at Halloween Havoc where, uh, you know, you get Rude and Chono or whatever and you get Vader uh, with the Barbarian kind of, again, very scattered brain. So it's all over the place. But there was potential there for sure. Per... The Oxford English Dictionary, slander, is uh, to make a false or damaging statement about someone. And I haven't said anything bad or anything, excuse me, false and damaging. Maybe damaging, but true. Larry Zabisco sucks. That I mean, I'm just going to, as long as we're doing this and we keep having a conversation about Larry Zabisco, I'm sorry, uh, where was Bruno San Martino in WCW at this time so Larry Zabisco could talk about Bruno's yard? I'm just curious. I, I, don't, I understand that there's a loss post that's needed, but that also goes to the point, find somebody else to be with Arn Anderson then. If it, if it has to be equal to or, I would just say equal to, replacement level for Larry Zabisco, you can find anybody, like literally anybody. Who's got a pulse? Period. End of story. Larry's Bisco sucks. Other option would be someone like Terry Taylor. If it's between those two, I take Larry 10 days out of 10. If I have to take either Terry Taylor or Larry Zabisco, I'd rather just take myself out. Now, hold on, though. Is this um, fake million-dollar man Terry Taylor? Because that kind of went hard. This is indeed deep into the uh, tailor-made man era of a uh, tailor. What if the York Foundation made a deal with the Dangerous Alliance to procure the rights of Richard Morton to put him with Arn Anderson as, I don't know if it's the enforcers, but you take Arn Anderson and another glor- a perfect tag team guy in Richard Morton and have them run with the Dangerous Alliance. So good. Something I thought of as I fell asleep to Survivor Series 89 for about the 800th time last night is uh, who do we think is the best performer in Survivor Series history? I feel like there's a lot of discussion on WrestleMania, SummerSlam, and Royal Rumble. 
uh, but not as much on Survivor Series, so interested to hear thoughts on that. Bret Hart, obviously. Bret was first one I thought of, too, um, but I I mean, for me, he does have more holes than I think for others because I don't like the 92 Sean match much at all, and uh, I think we all can agree the 93 match is <laughs> dreadful, so... That's kind of two blemishes in my mind that he had a main event spot and didn't necessarily deliver. Uh, 93's really uh. uh. So it's really built between 94 through 97 for me. And I do include 97 in that as well. Not even as a joke, though. Um, he's a big part of both 20-man tags in 87 and 88. He's uh, the anchor of the 89 Survivor Series tag match that he's in going up against the Kings Court, and he has that nice stretch with Savage. 90, uh, he ends up being like a way bigger part of his team uh, as he's like the last babyface uh, in peril and gets eliminated by DiBiase. Uh, he also gets over uh, Mr. Mark from Texas, uh, which I really wish he wouldn't have done so well at. 91, that's a fun uh, opener um, with like the, the giant disqualification for everybody except for Flair. 92, he's in the Breath of Fresh, uh, Breath of Fresh Air match with Sean. Uh, amid a bunch of turmoil and chaos in the company. 93, I mean, eh, he's teaming with the firemen and his idiot brother Keith and his overrated brother Owen um, and pudgy Shawn Michaels. So, like, what's he supposed to do? 94 is a classic with Backland. Uh, I think I had that at four and a quarter or four and a half uh, for war. 95, that's a five-star for me. 96 with Austin, that's a five-star with me. Uh, at the very least, those are both all-time classics as well. Uh, and then you have the most notorious match in uh, probably wrestling history against Sean in 97. So uh, it's the Hitman, Mr. Hitman, to be respectful. Yeah, Survivor Series 92 and 93 are his two low points uh, of his Survivor Series run, but the common denominator there is uh, Pudgy Shawn Michaels, and uh, I'm willing to uh, strike that from the Hitman's record. It's not his fault. I have a huge soft spot for uh, Survivor Series 93, and curious for everybody's opinion. Is that Hart family versus uh, Lawler and his Knights match that ends up being Shawn? Is that a lot better uh, or any different if Lawler is in that match? Uh, because him and Brett have, like, sneaky, fun chemistry. Um, and they have a ton of heat at that SummerSlam 93 match. So, like, if any of that carries over into the Survivor Series match, um, that it probably ends up being a lot better, I think. Racking my brain, but Survivor Series is so tough to think through the history. The cards don't just jump at you easily off the top. And I guess, like, is it best match, I guess best match performer, right? Because, I mean, like, Rock has some big Survivor Series memories, but not really any great matches, per se, um, besides the Hidden Gem Rikishi one. <clears throat> you got Austin. It's probably in the mix, because you got 96. You got uh, The Moment at 97. I guess 98 shaky. 99 is not, I don't know. I guess he's not. I, I was thinking, oh, one is so good, and 96 is so good, but he's not really in the mix. Uh, I don't know. It's one of those you have to dig deeper. I mean, Cena is always in the conversation, obviously. I mean, Orton's in there too, right? It's kind of synonymous with it, with all the surviving in the first few. It's just really good performances. Again, those those most recent ones are just tough. You gotta, gotta really dial into the car, but these are the ones that just keep popping in my head. I mean, Sean's always in the mix, obviously. Yeah, Randy Orton's my answer. Um, I don't think there's anyone really in WWE that kind of made their 
star or started their star at Survivor Series quite like Randy Orton. I mean, he came became synonymous with the term soul survivor in the last portion of, or in the later stages of the Survivor Series. Well, gosh, it's been 20 years since then, but even then, um, I think Orton has to be considered as Mr. Survivor Series if, uh, if we're counting everything else. Also, another name that might surprise you is The Big Show. Um, Big Show has a lot of really solid Survivor Series moments, um, or or not a lot of them, but he has three of the most memorable in consecutive years, am I right? I mean, winning the WWF title in that triple threat, getting placed at the last minute, and then going 1v5 at Survivor Series, and then like... A couple of Survivor Series later, he's involved in that Brock Lesnar, Paul Heyman screw job finish. Um, big shows in the short run. Look, number one's Bret Hart. All right, quit trying to talk yourselves out of it. It's it's Mr. Hitman, and it's okay that Bret Hart is actually Mr. SummerSlam and Mr. Survivor Series, and honestly, Mr. WrestleMania too. It's all right. Randy Orton's probably number two. Um Cena's good, but, like, I can't even name you, like, the matches he's had at Survivor Series. are just not memorable. There's too many of them. He has that, like, boring match with Jericho in 08. Like, uh, ain't no John Cena. Um, I do really like Orton at Survivor Series, though. Uh, he's got the, the, the three, uh, 03, 04, and 05. And he's really good in uh, 2016, too. Um, I think that's him and Wyatt are the last two there. Um, that's a really good match. Um... Yeah, that's all I got, though. Orton also has 07 with Sean with the no super kick, no RKO or, or whatever it is, where he punches him in the balls for the greatest ending of all time. Well, is it performances or is it storylines? Because, like, you're all talking Orton, but he's just heavily pushed at SummerSlam. Excuse me, at Survivor Series. So if that's the case, why are we not talking about The Undertaker? He's got all kinds of great moments at uh, Survivor Series. Like, he's got his debut. The next year, he wins the title. The next year after that, he buries Kamala. The year after that, he joins the USA team, which is huge. year after that, buries Yokozuna. year after that, gets his face smashed or coming back from his face smashed. year after that, finally defeats Mankind. He's not at 97. 98, he's got all the tournament stuff, which is strong. I don't know what he does at 99. I don't think he's there. He's not there at 99. 2000 hurts because he's fucking with Angle. 2001, he's in that big match. And then it all gets fucking shaky for me. Also, I mean, like, if we're going to... We can't just discount Sean, you know, because he's had the albatross of Bret Hart for two of the Survivor Series. So that's tough, you know? Like, it's a lot to overcome, right? Like, you know, Bret Hart and all his brothers. I mean, what do you want him to do? You know, it's just a collection of... You know, like a black hole, right? Um, so he's he's tough. And I mean, when you think of what he did with Sid, like, God, imagine if he got a better opponent than Brett. Aaron George, a Canadian man. Aaron George, an Undertaker stan. I believe in Aaron George. The best mix of storyline and performance may be Roman Reigns. The debut in, night, or in, the debut in 12, all the eliminations in 13, the tournament, tournament 15, Raw team in 16, Shield, New Day 17, 18, he had cancer, 19, the 
the big moment with Keith Lee in the NXT SmackDown on Raw. 20, the great match against Drew. 21, the very good match against Big E. This year, the first War Games. So historically, memory, moments, performance, booking, um, records, everything. The big dog, Roman. He also murdered Shane McMahon. I retract uh, believing in Aaron George. I now believe in Ryan Gray. Wah! You can't say cancer as though it's a, it, it's like a a storyline. You, you just you just wove it in there as though well he did this, he did that, and this year he had cancer. Like no one can compete with cancer. Well, he survived a series of it, so kind of fitting. I am willing to recognize Roman Reigns as the head of the table, my tribal chief, the Ua man, Mr. Ua, Mr. Smash'em Stack'em, and as Mr. Survivor Series. Leave it to Marcus to concede on the Bret Hart train only for Roman Reigns. Uh, I smell the smell of a thing that smells. You know, I was going to leave it alone, but as I was finishing up, I'm finishing up Warzone, you guys were talking about the timing, and uh, it's so funny that, like, you guys are talking Survivor Series 96, and in the end, you're, you're talking about how, um, <laughs> how it went long, and the first thing you said was, you could take eight minutes off the Triple H match, and it fucking killed me, because that's the, it's 96, and that's the story of his whole career. Every show, you could take eight minutes off and the show's probably better as a consequence. Another thought as um, Warzone closes is really telling that you guys talk about how WCW has had the best pay-per-views, but then almost all your top matches are WWF. Do you think that speaks to just what's going on at the top of the card at WCW in terms of who's there and what's going on? Or... Yeah, do you think it speaks to that? I feel like that's the entire story of the Monday Night War. Like, WCW has their undercard completely figured out. Um, especially in the beginning stages. But their main event scene was just always blasé. And it wasn't until they figured it all out that... W or sorry, when WWF figured it out and they had their group of 96, that 96 class finally level up in like late, like 90, late 97 into 98 is when the tide really turned. And that's when WCW bungles the sting NWO angle. So, um, really, Really interesting to go back and see that even over 15 years later, it still kind of has the same narrative as it did back way back when. But it's funny, right? Because we're like, WCW has the 
undercard figured out, but WWF has the main events figured out. I guess it's just my my view of what you just said, right? So then, how can we say that, though, when WCW was, like, in the midst of that crazy win streak? So maybe they did have it figured out. And maybe the masses just don't give a shit about in-ring <laughs> the same way we do, right? Because it's only when WWF... You're talking about 98... But it's really only when WWF has a main event angle that is, like, as hot. Like, it's Austin McMahon that kind of shifts the tide, right? And that's not in-ring at all. So what does that say about how valuable in-ring work is to wrestling as an industry? I think what it is is that the in-ring work matters when the most money goes out of the consumer's hands. Because you have to think, we're, we're a little spoiled now in, like, 2022 times with, you know, Peacock or the WWE Network where we pay $9.99 a month and we get all of these events for free, or not for free, but included in the subscription. And we get things like Fight TV where it's, like, $5 a month and we get all these shows. But back in the day, we were plunking $30, $35 Every two weeks for WWF and WCW pay-per-views. And WWF's in-ring pay-per-views, like, it felt like the main events had some sort of finality. But WCW television, the stuff that you could get every week in the comfort of your own home, was more captivating because the NWO stuff was just so strong. You partner that with the burgeoning cruiserweight division, like it was a recipe for success that they could just maintain and keep going. Um, and that's why it really takes until we get to like the Russo car crash era of WWF, like the crash television era where they're starting to compete because they're, they're giving us so many people and so many characters to get invested in that it just kind of blossoms. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some ways it's been a little bit too generalized where the narrative is main events from WWF are always good, main events from WCW are always bad. We've, going through Wrestling Wars only, both loved uh, the Bash at the Beach match in of itself, and we both liked the War Games match a good bit. Don't want to bury the lead, but I really enjoyed the World War Three Battle Royal that I just watched for an upcoming pod, too. So I, I don't know when exactly the main events in WCW do shift bad. I mean, I definitely remember, like, Piper Hogan at Halloween Havoc 97 being awful and Sting Hogan being awful at Starcade. We'll see if that holds true, but... But so far, I mean, they've been good. Uh, the, the good, very good to great. It's just when you look at the upper echelon of the matches we've watched over the career of the pod, it's definitely been uh, really involving Shawn Michaels or Bret Hart. So I think that's the key difference is just the ceiling as performers that Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels are and the fact that they're in a main event role, those two things coupled together are from a just pure star rating or best match we've seen standpoint better than anything that WCW can output as far as a, a metric. 
Yeah, I always felt like WWF's approach during this time is that their biggest match is also their best match, and they kind of put all their eggs into one or two matches uh, at the top of the card to deliver, whereas with WCW, it's all of this underneath work, but their biggest matches aren't going to be their best matches. I'm curious if, and there's no way of knowing this, but I'm sure I agree with Tim that, like, the main event NWO plus the cruiserweight makes sense. I agree with Chad that, um, <clears throat> that like, it's not every main event. I, I agree with all that. I'm more interested right now in, like, it, I find it fascinating that... How to put this? Even when I'm watching old WCW, like, I'm up to 1992 now, they're not good at presentation. And I wonder if that's the big tweak that they fix... To make the, to make it possible for the product to, um, to end up taking over the WWF to make that dent in the in the viewing audience, because I mean if when you look at like I don't know like eighty let's say eighty three to ninety two, it kind of feels like WCW generally has the better in ring product match to match. But again, the big WWF main events to me eclipse them. So WWF dominates, right? Like. I mean, not that I'm sure not that WCW wasn't popular, but I mean, until they get Hogan, they're like I feel like they're always distant second, except in PWI. Um, so yeah, like I wonder if it's a tweak in the presentation because that's what I'm noticing watching it. They're not great at presenting characters. They're not great at recapping stuff, but they get better at it. So I wonder if they that coupled with the Hogan heel turn allowed more people to kind of come in and uh, just be more interested and their product was almost more accessible like they got better at marketing their product to mass wrestling fans i think what that kind of boils down to is if you remember or if you recall back to like vince mcmahon very much saying like i am not i'm not in the wrestling business i'm in the movie making business um even though wrestling has always been a part of the name wwf it's more so not been like a mainstay of their their product. They do spectacle better than anyone else. I mean, they mix the incredible with in ring. Um, they have they've always had for whatever reason the crossover appeal from the mainstay media um, with just major celebrity after major celebrity getting involved in the WWF at some point in time. Whereas WCW was the wrestling business and in-ring was king. When Eric Bischoff comes into play with WCW, partnering that with the big names that WCW acquire over time from the WWF, Hogan, Savage, Hall, Nash, like all of those people, that kind of swings the tide WCW's way for about 83 weeks until eventually WWF gets the ability to make up for all the losses they lost from the new generation cut. Um, so it, it's definitely great. I, I feel like I should, yes, Pepper, hello. I feel like there's a, a lot to go back and, and rewatch with a fine tooth comb. Um, and, and that's, I guess, what they're doing in Wrestling Warzone is like reliving each weekly battle 
uh, to see where the, the battle lines are actually drawn. I think WCW gets better with the presentation with like Jesse Ventura coming in. And then after that, it's when Bischoff takes over and has more of his thumbprints onto what's happening on the uh, pay-per-view broadcasts and television. Um, Bischoff probably doesn't get enough credit for that. Not to shift gears too hard or make this a very, very timely podcast, but I was just thinking as I was picking up breakfast this wonderful American Thanksgiving morning, um, last night I I had to, um, for a friend, make deviled eggs, which is one of my specialties. And just now it got me thinking, what, which wrestlers do you think have the best specialty items at Thanksgiving if they were to make it all? Like, for example, I feel like the American Dream Dusty Rhodes would have had an immaculate fried turkey. Like, just crispy on the outside, juicy on the inside, cooked to perfection. You know that he's pulling out that wishbone, Daddy, and he's splitting it with either Cody or Dustin or whoever. But I'm curious what you guys think about, like, fantasy wrestlers and their Thanksgiving traditional dishes. Well, Larry Zabisco would have the worst green bean casserole. Norman the Lunatic would have the largest shit. Jeff Jarrett leaves with all the leftovers and somehow the deed to the house. Yeah, what's wrong with Mad Cat mashed potatoes, stone cold stuffing, and Jimmy Yang whams? (laughs) 